Amen. You can be seated. As you're being seated, I'm going to ask Todd Gill to come forward this morning. And Todd, uh, a lot of you know Todd, and he teaches over at Wabash Valley College. I asked him to come and pray this morning and pray as our schools are beginning to start up. Uh, we want to have a, just a special time of prayer for those that are teaching and those that are going back to school and so forth as well. So Todd's going to come and lead us in prayer. And after he prays, the ushers will come this morning and take up this morning's offering. So, Todd. After uh, Pastor Steve asked me to, to pray, I kind of pondered over a couple of verses I wanted to share with you as we pray for the coming school year and for our teachers. Uh, one was from Deuteronomy 6, uh, starting verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Uh, for many of you know, probably know, um, starting our fifth year of, of softball, and something I joke about sometimes when I'm coaching softballs as I, I wish five years ago I would have recorded some of the things I said to the girls then because I feel like sometimes I just need to hit the play button again because I feel like I say the same things over and over. And um, this past week or so, in, in, I'm on my second year of my one-year Bible reading. <laughs> it's taking me two years to do the one-year Bible plan. But um, I came across in Ecclesiastes 3, it said this, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. And so I thought about this upcoming school year. Uh, who, let's see a show of hands, school teachers, whether homeschool or public school. We've got some hands. I know, you know, um, Bo Bell is in there. We've got several in here that are. And um, some of you have taught longer than I have. As we begin another year, sometimes um, the repetition and the, I guess, um, just the consistency of, of, of teaching and, and that kind of thing and how you sometimes feel like you say and do the same things over and over. This, uh, this, these verses from Ecclesiastes was kind of convicting to me that this year as I teach... Um, that I would be joyful in the toil that God has given me, and that is, you know, to teach and educate the students at the college that, that they might see the Lord in me, how I live, in, in the joy that I have in serving them and, and doing what I do each day. So, so let's go to the Lord in prayer for our, our schools and our teachers this year. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning. I just thank you for your word. And as we pray to you, um, it should be our heart's desire to, to pray your word and to speak your truths that you've provided for us. And, and so I guess as we come to this, this uh, new year, ultimately, um, your desire for us is to, to know you and to make you known uh, in the world. And, and for, for some of us, that world that we live uh, in is, is in the world of, of teaching and educating uh, the children of our communities. So I pray right now that you would give um, the preschool educators the, the strength and um, the persistence and the joy to serve 
the young people as they're growing and their minds are learning that you would give them the patience to do that. I pray for our elementary educators that they would serve well. Um, our middle school teachers that um, they would have the strength to endure uh, young people as they're transitioning from, from childhood into their youth, uh, that you would give them the, the, um, just the strength to, to serve you well in the things that they say and the words that they speak to those young people. I pray for our high school teachers um, as they serve the young people that are, are going through changes in life and, and dealing with some of the struggles of, of friendship and I guess um, maybe even getting to the stage of life where they're asking questions about truth and that type of thing that we might be a light uh, in that phase of life to these kids that to point them to you and to ask the questions uh, who God is and, and do we believe the Bible to be truth and so I just pray for those teachers uh, as they serve in that role I pray for our administrators that they would lead well and that they would seek your word out to, as they as they um, even go about their ways and leading, the, that they might be able to do so with joy and, and serving the teachers uh, that they're uh, working for and ultimately serving our kids. I pray for um, our post-high school uh, teachers that, um, that they might have opportunities. I'm thankful for opportunities that, that you give me each day um, to speak truth to, to kids outside of the classroom and and just for the opportunity to, to be there and to serve them. Pray for all of our homeschool parents, um, the moms and the dads as, as they toil, that you might give them the strength to endure each day to, to serve their kids well and to lead uh, in your word and your truth as, as they educate uh, in their home. Pray for grandparents that play a role in serving their children as well, um, that, that they might be able to assist parents and families as, as these kids grow and learn. So uh, we just come to you this morning, ultimately uh, recognizing that the young people are your future and just help us to disciple them well in your truths and to lead them in a way that, that might make your name known to all the nations, uh, both in here in Mount Carmel and in the United States. I just pray ultimately that our country and our nation would turn back to you and would make your name known uh, to all stretches of uh, the ends of the earth. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to look underneath the chair you're sitting in or one close to you and turn with us in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. And it's chapter 16. Since this is God's word, I'd like to ask you to stand and remind ourselves of who it is that's speaking to us in this book, that is God. So let's stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray together again. Our Father, we come now as we have sing, we've sang songs this morning of centered around what you have done and who you are. We've prayed together. We've met in Sunday school and fellowshiped over your word. We've given tithes and offerings so that your word and your kingdom might be extended and we have prayed together. And so now we come and we want to listen and hear what your word says. Father, we pray that you would teach us what salvation is and how it is that we're saved. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. First thing I'd like to do is turn your, take your attention, turn your attention to verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, or it was actually Matthew says that, uh, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And what's taking place here in these verses of scripture is that Jesus has told the disciples, he's asked, actually asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say you're a prophet, this prophet, that prophet, even a prophet's been raised from the dead. They say great things about Jesus. The people are saying great things about you, Jesus. But he turns to the disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you got it right. And Peter, it's, it's that kind of confession, it's through that kind of proclamation that I'm gonna build my church. You got it right, Peter. You're blessed. You got it right. I am the Christ. Then he says in verse 20, now don't tell anybody. <laughs> you got it right. I'm the Christ. Jesus is not denying it. He himself, by acknowledging that Peter is blessed and it's revealed from the Father, Jesus is claiming to be the King of Kings. He's either liar, Lord, or lunatic. But now he says, you got it right, verse 20. He says to the disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Now, why in the world would he say that? We know we come to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and he says, now go tell everybody, not just Jews, as restricted earlier when he sends out the disciples by twos, but now he says, go out in Matthew 28 and tell the whole world, even the Gentiles, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But for now, don't tell anyone. Well, we can only speculate a little bit as to why that is, but we, as we consider the context of which the disciples found themselves in following Jesus up to this point, the disciples were very infantile in their faith. In fact, more than one time, Jesus says about the disciples that they have little faith. Little faith is better than no faith, but their faith is little. Their faith is in an immature state. And even though Peter has grasped by the grace of God, who Jesus is, there's other things he's not yet grasped. He's not yet understood really what Jesus' mission is about the church, and you'll see that in just a moment. Not only that, but Peter himself is 
if, he, if, if Peter alone is the foundation of the church and that's passed on to his successor, Peter's a pretty shaky foundation because Peter does not yet grasp how it is that Jesus is going to accomplish his mission. And he's rebuked by the Lord Jesus, of course, in these verses that we've read. So, but why the silence? Why go out? Why, why, don't, why should they not go tell anybody? Well, we, we might think, well, if they go out and tell people right now, that's going to lead to Jesus' possible arrest and execution early because there's a lot of uh, zealots out there who may try to see that as an opportunity to overthrow the Romans. There are Jews, increasing opposition here at this point, Jewish leaders who want Jesus dead, and it's not yet time. And certainly, that would have been a reason for Jesus to say it's not yet time for him to go and fulfill his mission, which is, of course, at the cross. But neither are the disciples quite ready themselves. I consider this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 16, at Caesarea Philippi to be a turning point in a lot of ways for the disciples He's teaching them some lessons here. Christology 101, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he teaches them about the church, about ecclesiology. Now he's going to teach them something about soteriology. What is salvation? Soteriology, what is salvation? Sozo is a Greek word for salvation. So when we use the word soteriology, we're talking about the study of or the doctrine of salvation. And why he's telling them don't go out and tell anybody is because they don't yet understand really what salvation is. It's really kind of difficult to discern at what point the disciples are born again. Some would say at this point Peter is born again because he says you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But he sure doesn't act like it as he denies the Lord Jesus and cusses like a sailor there at the garden of, after the garden of Gethsemane and before Jesus' crucifixion. None of them act like they're believers quite yet, certainly immature. And do we understand, so ask yourself this question, the disciples being in the state that they are, what if they went out right now at this point and they went and told people what Peter just said, they went to the crowds and they said, look, everybody, Jesus is the king. We know he's the king. What, what, what else would their message have sounded like? Their message would have sounded like, hey, he's the king. He's the Messiah. And he's going to overthrow the Romans. They didn't understand really what he had come to do and accomplish. He's going to build a church, a following. Jesus just told them that. But did they really understand the nature of what that church would be doing in the world and its purpose in the world? Jesus is coming and you can have your best life right now because the Roman oppression is going to be away from us. You see, the disciples were also told not to go out and tell the crowds because their message about the Christ would be incomplete at this point, even though Jesus had told them in so many words. You can't go out and proclaim the gospel if you don't really know what the gospel is. And they weren't quite ready. The modern message the gospel that they were proclaiming, and forgive me this morning, but I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to draw some, something up here on the board. The, the disciples' message, the ancient message of the disciples, would have sounded a whole lot like our modern message. And here recently in our church, we've been going through some evangelism training called Three Circles. And so I'm going to draw three circles up here this morning to kind of just illustrate for a little bit and hope everybody can see okay what the three circles of 
the modern message or the ancient message of the disciples at that point in their lives would have sounded like. So if you have a piece of paper, you can draw at the bottom of your sermon notes or whatever. Here's one of the circles. And for this, this circle, for the Jewish people, the, the disciples were Jews, this first circle would have, would have been this. It would have been comfort. Comfort. That's what they wanted. That's what everybody wants. God is king. You can't see this up here. You'll just have to listen carefully or write it out if you want to. God is king over Israel. That's what the Jews wanted, right? That's the fulfillment of the old covenant. This was God's design for Israel. God truly wanted that for Israel. That's true. There's nothing I've written here that's not true. That would have been what the disciples were proclaiming. That's what any Jew would have been proclaiming. This is what God wants for Israel, God to be king over his people Israel, his Messiah reigning physically on earth. Nobody is doing anything to the Jews anymore. Not Pharaoh, not, the, not Caesar, not anybody. The Messiah is king and we don't have any problems anymore. He should wipe every tear from their eyes. There's passages like that in the prophets in the book of Isaiah. And over here represents what they're currently experiencing. What are they currently experiencing in Israel at this time? Roman occupation, right? The Romans are in charge. The Romans are oppressing the people of Israel. The, Caesar is seated as king in Israel, right? Over Israel, over the Roman, over the known world really at the time. And why is that? They are in exile. Exile, E-X-I-L-E. They're in exile still. They're not experiencing this. They're experiencing this brokenness in their lives. And why is that? Well, they, would, they should know that the reason they've got from here to here is why. What have they done? What did they do in the Old Testament? Idolatry? Rebellion? It's all right idolatry up here. And the old-fashioned word sin, the biblical word sin, that's why that, it got them to hear. This is real important to remember. And a lot of the Israelites may have acknowledged that at the time. Oh God, please forgive us. Please forgive us. We've rebelled against you. Please send Messiah so we can get back over here again. Well, here's, here's where things really go wrong and what the disciples' message would have sounded like at this time. Their good news that they're going to get from from, from where they're at right now, which is exile and Roman oppression and bad things happening, getting to over here, similar that Christ is going to come. Christ means king. All the Jews believed that God was going to send a king, right? Y'all with me? They all believed God's going to send a king. Please send Messiah. Please send Christ. Please send the king. But what are they, what are they going to preach? What, what's their message going to sound like? What's the king going to do? What's he going to get rid of? Remember over here, Romans, Christ, send Christ, and he's going to get rid of the Romans. And he's going to get rid of all of our enemies. And that's salvation. So, so you understand, here's where things go wrong in the disciples' message up to this point, if they would have went out telling people he's a Christ. Is that, Jesus, is that the Christ is going to come and they're saying Jesus is king. Now get ready. This is what he's going to do. Israelites, this is what he's going to do. He's going to get rid of the Romans. 
And when he does that, we're gonna, we're gonna pick up our swords and we're gonna follow him. We're gonna carry our swords triumphantly cause we're gonna have comfort, see that? Through conquest, through military conquest. And that's, that, that would have been the gospel message at that point. And I'm here to tell you that that message sounds a whole lot like the modern message in a lot of ways that we hear from even some evangelical professing Christians. That it's all about comfort. We got problems and Jesus just wants to come and get rid of our problems. But this right here, sin is the problem and it's not dealt with. You see, Jesus' message, the master's message is this. Jesus didn't come together a crowd. You see what this is gonna result in? When they start proclaiming this, if the disciples go out and proclaim this, what's gonna be the result? That's exactly what people wanna hear. Get rid of my problems, which are the Romans, get rid of everything that's causing me problems, yeah, that's what I want to hear. And they're going to get a crowd. People are going to love it. But Jesus didn't come together a crowd across of, of comfort-seeking sword carriers. You got it? Through military conquest in order to get that comfort. Jesus came to build his church, as he just told the disciples. He came to build his church of cross-carrying followers through his death on a cross. And this is what he's telling the disciples right here. But, but do they get it? Do they understand it? Do they grasp it? In fact, what does Peter say when, after Jesus explains it to him? It ain't never going to happen. We ain't going to let that happen to you. There's two things that the disciples need to understand and two things that we need to understand if we're gonna pass Soteriology 101, this class Soteriology 101, two things. If you're gonna be able to answer the question, how are we saved? I mean, this is just basic. How are we saved? And another really important question that I've already mentioned this morning, we gotta be able to answer this question, how are we saved? And as a girl said one time that I tried to witness to at Hardy's, <laughs> she said, well, I ain't needed no saving yet. What is salvation? What is salvation? This is something the disciples had not yet grasped. And I fear that many, many people today who profess to know Christ have not yet grasped. How are we saved and what is salvation? So there's two things we've got to understand. Disciples need to understand if they're going to pass soteriology 101 so that this mess is corrected. That, that this good thing that they would have taught and this good thing that they would have recognized and this good thing that they would have taught would have been holistic and corrected to understand that Jesus came more than just get rid of our problems and give us an easy life here on this earth. So two things. Number one, the cost of building this church. The cost of building this church. And the second thing is the cost of following Christ. So there's two things. The cost of building this church. And the second thing, beginning with verse 24, is the cost of following Christ. I think you can see that just right when you look at your Bible. The cost of building this church. 
and the cost of following Christ. Well, let's take up the first one quickly, the cost of building his church. Remember what Jesus says to Peter after Peter makes that great confession. He says to Peter in verse 18, look at your Bible. What does he say he's going to do? He says, Peter, you got it right. I am the Christ. And let me tell you what I'm going to do. I tell you, you're a Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. He says, Peter, you need to understand what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build a following. I'm going to build a people, a called out people. I'm going to build a church. Not a crowd of cross, of uh, comfort seeking sword carriers. I'm going to build a church. And when we, by the time Jesus gets done in this interaction with Peter and the disciples, you're going to understand that church is not comfort seeking sword carriers, but they're Self-denying, life-losing followers of Jesus Christ. Self-deniers, they're repenters. That's the church. First Baptist Church, when you built this building, I don't know how many years ago, it may have been about 10, 11 years ago. I don't know how, how new this sanctuary is. It's fairly new. I know when I came, there was still some debt owed and we were able to, by the grace of God, to pay the rest of it off. Wasn't that, wasn't that a relief to pay the debt off for this building and, and not have that hanging over your heads. Or for many of you who've paid off a home, you know, or paid off a car, isn't it a relief to have that debt completely paid? Well, here, as Jesus talks about building this church, of course, he's not talking about a physical building. He's talking about a following, right? And so to, to build that, there's a cost. And it's not a cost that's a monetary cost that you can take out Roman coins and pay for it, it's going to cost more than that. It's going to cost what Jesus says in verse 21. Look at your Bible again in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Now, I don't know that Peter really heard the last seven words of this verse, if there's seven there, six or whatever, on the third day and on the third day be raised. It's as if Peter don't even hear that part. He just hears the suffering and the killing part. But I want you to see the, really I think a key word here in verse 21 is the word must, M-U-S-T. I got that underlined in my Bible, must. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer from the hands of those Elders, scribes, priests, all these people who'd have been, who would have been saying the same things that the disciples would have said about their modern message, those very people that are going to kill Jesus, they're going to say he is not the king. He is not the king. It is foolishness to think that a king would come looking like him, saying the things he's saying, uh, undermining our law and our traditions, and now being handed over the Romans like this, hanging on a cross. If you're the Christ, come down from the cross. Foolishness. He's going to be handed over, he's going to suffer, and he's going to be killed and on the third day rise again. What Jesus is telling them is this must happen. The cost of building this church reminds us, when we ask ourselves the question, how are we saved? Is this, Jesus paid the full price of salvation. How are we saved? How are we saved? Jesus died. Do you want to know how it is that any of us will be in heaven one day? That what actually saves us is not our faith. We're saved through faith and repentance, right? By the grace of God. But what actually saves us, what God looks at 
when he sees us standing before him one day is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. And how did we get that status? By the grace of God because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He must go to the cross. If he does not go to the cross, then everyone in the Old Testament goes to hell. No matter Moses, Elijah, all of them that believed that Messiah was coming and believed in the promises and believed that the sacrificial system was pointing to a substitute in the Messiah one day. They're all, they're all perishing and we all are perishing as well. He must go to the cross. But Peter has none of it, right? Verse 22, Peter took him aside. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus, come here. And he rebukes him, doesn't he? Verse 1, Jesus, this will never happen to you. It's not as if, it doesn't sound as if Peter's saying, Jesus, no, that's never going to happen. No, it sounds as if Peter's saying, I'm, that's never going to happen. I, that's, well, I'm not going to let that happen to you. It's never going to happen. But he turned to Peter in verse 23 and calls him the devil. One moment, <laughs> I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. And the next moment, he's being called the devil. Get behind me, Satan, he says in verse 23. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And man says, the things of man says, there's a salvation that can be accomplished that involves things other, getting rid of things other than sin. That salvation, the things of man says, my real problems is I've got problems with my wife. I'm having problems at home. I'm having financial problems. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I just found out my mother-in-law's got cancer. I just found out that this is going to happen. I'm going through this and this and this. And and Jesus is going to take all that away. That's what Jesus came to do is take all that away. And there's some truth in that. He, he's going to. But he came to deal with this. One day, we'll have this comfort. And there'll be no more crying, amen? And no more pain, all that thing. We're not, we're not, diminished. We're not playing that down, folks. That's going to happen. But that's later, not now. And we pray as if, there will be a manifestation of his kingdom in its fullness even now by healing and, and providing and, and mending relationships and all that. And he does that often, but often he chooses not to for his own good purposes. But he came to deal with sin. So Peter says, have nothing of it. He sounds like the devil. That's what the devil said. Jesus, uh, the devil said in the, tempt, in the wilderness, I'll give you all, you can have all of this. I'll give you all of this as if the devil had it to give. If you'll just bow down, worship me and all that. If you'll shortcut the system and not go to the cross, even the devil understood that Jesus, if he went to the cross, that's really where the victory was going to take place. So Peter's talking and thinking like the devil. Peter didn't yet understand and grasp the necessity of the cross. So there's two things about that really quickly before I move on. Jesus needs to go to the cross because it's the Father's plan. It's the Father's plan. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and I just want you to see that when he's actually at the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter is there. 
Matthew chapter 26, Peter still at this point, even up the Garden of Gethsemane, does not understand, even the other disciples as well, the necessity of the cross. Matthew chapter 26, verse 51. Listen carefully or look with me. So this is right after Judas walked up and gave Jesus a kiss and was betraying him. Verse 51, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled. You need to hear that part, verse 54. How will the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Jesus is saying this to Simon Peter in Matthew 16. This must happen because the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, say it's going to happen. It must happen. If God says it, it's going to happen. And surely that becomes one of the primary focal preaching points of the early apostles in the book of Acts is they say this has happened just as the prophets said it was going to happen. So he's got to go to the cross because it's the Father's plan, but he's got to, he's got to go to the cross because, as I've been talking with someone recently, because without Jesus, we ain't got a shot. <laughs> That's just as simple as it is. Without Jesus, we don't have a shot. There'll never be any comfort and peace and prosperity and all that stuff without Jesus unless he goes to the cross and sheds his blood. And there'll most importantly be no relationship with God. So listen to what Romans chapter 3 says. Romans chapter 3, we often use Romans chapter 3 verse 23 in our gospel presentations, don't we? Romans chapter 3 verse 21 but, how, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is Romans 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was how God's righteousness, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. In his divine forbearance, those who had sinned in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, he had passed over until the time in which Jesus would come and shed his blood. They would be forgiven, not because of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. They would be forgiven because all that pointed to Jesus. One day he would shed his blood and anyone who was trusting in God's promise would be saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was set forth as propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means what he did completely satisfies the payment. The cost of building his church required a payment for our sin. This is just simple. Jesus paid it all. We just sing it, right? Jesus paid it all. And Jesus is trying to help. I hate to say Jesus is trying to do anything here. Jesus is telling the disciples that the way for his church to be built, his, his mission to be accomplished, he must go to the cross. That church will not be built. There'll be no people of God. There'll be no salvation unless he goes to the cross. 
So Peter passed Christology 101. He knew who Christ was, but he failed Soteriology 101. He got called the devil. He doesn't understand what salvation is and how we're saved. And I fear this is what happens to many people who profess to know Christ and end up going to hell because they pass Christology 101. They can tell you who Jesus is, but they don't know what in the world Jesus came to do. And they're not trusting in what he came to do. This is what I call easy believism. Just believe that he's Jesus and believe this. And you're saved. Whether there's any desire on your part to, to follow this Jesus and live for him or not, just, just, just believe these facts. That has deceived more people and led more people to hell that profess Christ than any other thing, I imagine. Two things you've got to understand if you're going to pass Soteriology 101 is the cost of building this church and secondly, the cost of following Christ. We said about the cost of building this church that Jesus pays the full price of our salvation. We see that in verse 21. Jesus doesn't explain it in so many words there. This is something they'll understand later. But what you see in verse 24 is Jesus begins to explain the cost of following Christ. That if those who are part of his church, those that make up his church, what do they look like? Who, who, who are they? Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, Jesus tells the disciples, if I'm going to the cross and I'm going to lay down my life for you, you're going to be doing the same. You're going to be carrying your cross. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to be repenters. This faith if you believe that this Christ that has come, that he is Jesus, then it doesn't mean picking up your sword to overthrow the Romans. It means carrying up your cross and turning from your sin and following Jesus. It's that word that doesn't get used enough called repent. In other words, and you see it in the, in the apostles preaching in the book of Acts, it's called repentance and faith. This faith alone that saves is never alone. It's a repentant faith. It's a faith that believes so much that it turns and it begins to follow Christ. And, and you go where Christ is going. And where does Christ go? He goes to Jerusalem and he dies on a cross. He doesn't go to Rome and overthrow, the, overthrow Caesar. He goes to Jerusalem and dies on the cross and that's what he, what he says to the disciples. If you're going to follow me, the people that are part of my church, they're going to follow me and they're going to carry their cross and deny themselves. And until I come back, Jesus is helping them understand the church is going to be like an outpost in this world representing my kingdom until I come back one day. Of course, Jesus says he's going to rise again and we've not even talked about that. That's the good part, right? He's going to be raised again. He can't come back if he's not been raised. But we've seen the cost of building this church means that Jesus paid the full price of our salvation. The cost of following Christ means this. Jesus is worthy of complete devotion. Isn't that what's going on in verse 24 and 25 and 26? Isn't that what we see? Complete devotion. He pays the full price of our salvation and he is worthy of our complete devotion. So for a man or woman or boy or girl to be saved how are we saved we are saved by what christ does on the cross he accomplishes our salvation what is salvation 
It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved from our sin. And it changes us and makes us followers of Jesus. It changes our life. So, and it's on the front of your bulletin and and you can look up here as well. So we've been going through some evangelism classes here at our church to really understand the gospel then is this. A lot of this, like I said earlier, is the same, right? We'll just put God's design up here. God's design. And unfortunately, a lot of modern presentations of the gospel, the way this starts off for a lot of people is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, God does love you and God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but that's not where we should start with the gospel. God is king and God is holy. And he does want to reign over a people on this earth forever. He's king right now. And when we're under his kingship and he's reigning over everything, brother, that's exactly how things ought to be. Amen, church? But we live in a sinful world, the reality is. We have sinned against God. And because of that, we're, we're not experiencing, we're experiencing sickness and suffering and all those things, brokenness in our lives, right? So I'm writing brokenness in this circle. This is on the front of your bulletin, the little diagram we put on there. And we can leave Christ right here. That's not changed. But I'm going to write the word gospel here. This is the gospel. Just soteriology 101. What is salvation? It's being saved from our sin. This is the problem. The modern message, the disciples' message, would not have sounded like that. It would have said, get rid of this. Get rid of all this brokenness and not get to the root, which is sin. Jesus came to get rid of sin. He came to get rid of the, go to the cross. And the way that, and what we need to do in light of that is we need to repent. We need to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you understand what that means? To repent means to turn around and follow him. It don't mean to turn over a new leaf. It means to Jesus is king now. I'm going to follow Christ. Wherever he leads, I'll go by his grace. And then, I, the word restore has been used in this gospel presentation we've been sharing. I, I'd like to just use the word sanctify. He begins to sanctify us and set us apart and make us more like Jesus until the day we, that he comes back and we live with him again. One day, folks, Remember what Peter didn't seem to listen to there in verse 21? And on the third day, what's going to happen? Be raised. And he was. And one day he's coming back. And because of that, those who repent and trust in Jesus will one day live just as God has intended, with God as king, worshiping a holy God. And he truly will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be all kinds of benefits from being in God's kingdom. But the greatest thing, of course, is going to be being in the presence of God, knowing God and having a relationship with Him. Being right there with loved ones, some that we've buried even in this past year who know Jesus, rejoicing with them, just as God has planned. So the cost of following Christ, I think it's not, that's not presented rightly when we share the gospel often, when, when professing Christians share the gospel 
And I think a point of application before I close this morning to remind you of is this. My life is not about my comfort, okay? I, I want to have comfort. But I'm reminded of as I study this week in this passage of Scripture, my life is not about me being comfortable. Uh, I'm not the, you know, if I drew a circle right here, I think everybody, we, we tend to want to put ourselves in the center of that and everything needs to evolve around and everybody needs to make us feel special. But, but Jesus is the center. And, all that, and, and, we're, and we're just supposed to be pointing people to him. And I wrestle with that. I want to be comfortable. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on in my life and my family's life. And I don't like it. But one thing that, a quote that I heard not long ago from a pastor, Jeff Thomas, who pastors in Wales, has pastored for 50 years I was watching an interview several months ago and I went back and looked at it again this week and they asked him this question in his interview. You pastored one church for 50 years in Wales. What was the most difficult aspect of the ministry for you? And he said this, I don't think any of it was easy. I don't think any of it should be easy. That's the part that got me that I needed to hear. I don't think any of it should be easy. I was taking up my cross and denying myself and following the Lord Jesus. Jesus, wasn't I? Is that supposed to be easy? To take up a cross and deny yourself and follow Christ? So that dare not become easy, he says, that, that I was doing it on the way to something else. That, that, I've, that I've actually got something else in mind I'm going to be doing. No, to follow Jesus, that, that's your life, is to deny yourself, take up a cross and follow him. And we pray, Lord, heal me. Lord, take care of this situation. Lord, I don't like this. Lord, I don't understand why this is going on. We pray and we ask for those deliverances even now, right? But as a Sunday school class I talked about this morning, Tim Johnson's class, we trust the Lord's purposes, that he's got a greater purpose going on than us. It's his glory. And I like the old hymn, by and by, when the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we shall tell the story how we've overcome, and we'll understand it better by and by. <laughs> That's going to be a good day. It's like old Paul said, For I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy <laughs> to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. Not even worthy. I mean, man, some of you have been through some really hard times here. But God says what you've experienced as hard as your heart is breaking even now. It's not worth even mentioning compared to the glory that shall be revealed. Amen? Because he has raised, been raised. He has taken care of sin on the cross. Followers of Jesus, a point of application, followers of Jesus are called to build nothing less than the church. And this really rang true with me this week as I thought of this passage of scripture. Followers of Jesus are called to build nothing less than the church. Well, I thought Jesus said he will build the church. He does. And we read in other passages where Paul talks about building upon that foundation. So mixing metaphors and so forth is not helpful there. Jesus builds his church. He builds his church through his church proclaiming the truth of Jesus, the foundation of the church. 
Our lives are called, we're called to carry a cross. As it says, for what will it profit a man in verse 26 if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Or how life is not about us. It's about his church. So as we recognize school teachers this morning, and my mother was a, a school teacher, Lois Frills, uh, taught for over 30 years as a third grade school teacher. My father was a school teacher and administrator and retired and, and uh, Deanna taught several years as a school, school teacher. I got my teacher certification. We got it running in our blood. Teachers, teachers, teachers everywhere. My mom taught for 30 years and she saw her third grade classroom as her mission field. And she lived in, she, towards the end of teaching for her, before she retired, it changed more so, but, but you know, she would read the Bible and read devotions to the kids in the classroom. Of course, you, most school systems, you can't get away with that much anymore, but there's still some that you, you can do that. And, and mom did that. And, when, and she found other ways to embrace what she was doing uh, to build the church. What I'm saying with my mom as an example, and this is what I've tried to emphasize since being here as your pastor, we're supposed to see wherever God's place is as our mission field, that's a place where we're supposed to see ourselves as building the church. The reason you're a homeschool mom, the reason you're a public school teacher, the reason you're a coach, the reason you're, you're retired and in the situation you're in right now, the whole reason is to build the church and nothing less. Anything else will crumble. Anything else that we're building will fall. So we try to be successful in our endeavors and our careers and all these things and we have goals and those are good things. But the main focus for my mom as a public school teacher was not to build some career and be the teacher of the year and all this kind of stuff. It was to witness to parents and teachers, witness to parents, teachers, and students in the classroom. We're called to build nothing less than the church. So we're called to go out and share this, this news right here by our lives, folks, but also by our lips. A lot of people don't know it. A lot of people think as long as they're, they're good and okay, they'll get to heaven. As long as they've mouthed a, a few words about Jesus, they're all right, and it don't matter what their life looks like after that. And they're deceived. Peter failed Christology 101, and, or failed uh, Soteriology 101, but later he would pass it, wouldn't he? On the day of Pentecost, he stands up and preaches the gospel. What changed for Peter? I've had, a, I've had a lot of odd jobs when I was in seminary and college. My kids probably don't know about some of these odd jobs. Cutting grass is one of them, but I worked in a deli for a while, and they had to show me how to make sandwiches and heat up the chili and all this stuff and get the candy bars stocked and all that kind of stuff. Worked at the deli at a hospital. I put up satellite dishes one summer and thought the guy was going to shoot me because I didn't get his satellite dish up in time for his boxing match and wasn't too good at that. I worked for pest control for a buddy one time, and He'd tell me if you went into certain apartments, he'd show me how to spray the apartments. And he'd say, knock on the door and say, pest control. He'd say, if you go in one of them and, and you go in there and you can't, you can't breathe because it's so nasty. And there were some nasty ones you went into. He said, just squirt and then run out the door. That's what I did. I cut tobacco one summer for a guy and man, I wasn't cut out. There's some things I could do and some things I just didn't have the skill set to do. And whenever I had a different kind of job, somebody would always show me what to do. 
And then I, I can, but sometimes I just found out that's just not me. I don't have the skill set to do it very effectively. Peter here was not just being told what to do. Jesus, later he was going to see Jesus actually go to the cross and carry his own cross, you see, and be raised three days later. Peter, Peter's going to watch Jesus do what he's telling him he's got to do to be a follower of Jesus in his church. Carry your cross, Jesus is going to do it. Peter's going to get to watch him do it. Here's the thing. Peter watches Jesus die along with the other disciples, sees him raised again, but even then they say, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They still don't understand. What is it that happens to them that they finally grasp the gospel? They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this skill set that I was lacking in some of the odd jobs I had, even though I watched people do it, and even though the disciples watched Jesus go to the cross and carry his cross and, and be the example before them that they're supposed to live and, and be their sacrifice for their sins on the cross, they were not ready to proclaim the gospel till they were indwelt by the Spirit. But here's what happens. Jesus comes, he's, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This same Jesus came to live within Peter to cause him to know what true salvation is, to trust only in Jesus on the cross. So it's a little tricky trying to figure out the, the salvation of the disciples when exactly at what place they were born again. But I can tell you this, our Pentecost happens when we are born again, when we believe and repent and trust in Jesus. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, Peter... Peter would write what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Because Peter was indwelt by the Holy Spirit and understood the gospel, he embraced the fact that I'm not saved by works. I'm not, and salvation is not being saved to have an easy life. Salvation is being saved through sin, saved from sin, and it takes the blood of Jesus to do it, and that is my salvation. That's where I rest. And the cross became precious to him and not foolishness. Just like we sing, Oh, the old rugged, oh, the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine has a wondrous attraction for me. Isn't that an odd thing to say? A bloody cross has a wondrous attraction for me. All oh, that seems like that probably would appeal to the modern minds of people who are so infatuated and mesmerized by goriness and bloodletting on television and violence and movies and so forth. But this blood upon the cross has a wondrous attraction for us. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Amen. Someday. And what I'm here to tell you and remind ourselves here on this first day of the week is someday is coming. Amen. Someday is coming. And that's why we read in the end of the book of Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. But until he comes, we've got work to do. And what we're presented in this passage of scripture is don't expect that work to, to be easy. Don't be surprised when where God has you right now in life becomes really, really hard and really, really difficult. 
And maybe you have some fleeting doubts about God's goodness and God's purposes. You work till Jesus comes. And the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. <laughs> that is such a wonderful verse. <laughs> Woo! Glory! It's not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed. Do we, do we even fathom in our minds how glorious the fullness of salvation is going to be? Perhaps those who suffer most may rejoice most. I don't know. All I know is it's going to be good. You bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the gospel, this good news. We're saved by what Jesus did on the cross, that he must go, and then he did go to the cross, and he was raised three days later. Father, increase our faith as the cross becomes heavy. And it's not easy many times. We wax and wane and, and feel as if we're coming out of a hard place and then right around the corner there's an unforeseen circumstance or the same old thing, the same old struggle maybe. Father, we thank you that we have a high priest that's able to empathize with us, that came and lived among us and doesn't suffer us to be tempted above which we are able, but will with the temptation make it a way of escape that we can bear it, Lord. We thank you for your grace being sufficient for us. Oh, Lord, we need this gospel and we need each other to remind us of that so that when we leave this place, and, and maybe our circumstances hadn't changed, but, but neither has our mission and our mission is not to get out of that circumstance. Our mission is to build the church. Whether that circumstance is still going on or not, and we pray for it to be delivered of it, our, our mission is to build your church right in the middle of it. To proclaim the truth of the gospel. So Lord, mobilize us and send us out. Heal, restore relationships, mend, Grant repentance to our lost loved ones. Do these things because you can, Lord, and we ask you to do it. We don't know why you want sometimes. We pray for it. But Lord, as we're praying and crying out for you to do this, Lord, help us to trust you and help us to proclaim good news. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll stand right now and sing this closing hymn together. And as we stand and sing, if you'd like to come and pray, you're welcome to do so. Or if... Uh, if you'd like to talk with me about something that God's doing in your heart, we can talk right now as well. But you come right now if God's speaking to you. Let's sing together.